0: Hey guys, what's up? Matt here for a very special episode of Coffee is for Closers. We have the former Prime Minister of Australia, Tony Abbott with us today. I've known Tony for a long time from some, um, from some family connections and I wanted to get him here today to be able to kind of, I thought it'd be really interesting to go over like the persuasion of politics And sort of like how, you know, a little bit of like, like inside baseball type stuff, but really kind of talk to you about like, not necessarily policy decision making or anything like that. But, um, you know, our audience is predominantly salespeople. And I can't really think of a, a more intense or meaningful thing to persuade somebody on something you think is going to drive the country forward. If you listen to this podcast, you will make your first million within three years. I'm going to repeat that. You will make a million dollars within three years of the first episode you listen to. We don't want pikers. We're not here to save the manatees. We're here to make podcasts. You really want this. You listen and review. Put that coffee down. I've known Tony for I think like twelve years now, or something like that.
1: Um, I think we first met Matt at a military funeral back in about two thousand and eleven. Yes, uh, up in Queensland, and uh, of course uh, you were going out with uh, Samantha McGee at that stage. Yeah. Now Samantha Boone, lucky her, lucky yeah. her, <laughs> and of course uh, your father-in-law has been a great mate of mine for forty odd years since yeah. we met at university. So it's good to be talking.
0: So yeah, so I've I've had the privilege of kind of um of knowing you when you were the prime minister as well. We got to have Christmas lunch one day at the uh, at the house there. And so it's been a very interesting to be able to see you kind of obviously come up and then you know hit the ultimate, you know, political prowess and stuff you, like you've, that. You've
1: you've seen you've seen me get to the top and you've seen me topple off at Matt. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I was there for you've that. Seen, too. You've seen uh, the high and the low. I, I mean, ob- obviously the, the, the highest high point you can reach in politics is to become Prime Minister. Yeah. At least in this country. And, and inevitably, the day that happens, uh, Election Day 2013, is uh, an extraordinary summit to have climbed. Uh, but then uh, when you get turfed, that's a, a pretty low point as well. And, yeah. And um, the interesting thing about politics is that you've got to have a very thick skin. Yep, uh, You've got to have a very strong sense of self. And it certainly helps if you've got uh, a conviction and courage because that gives you a reason to go on.
0: Yeah. I think conviction, it's a super, uh, like I talk about conviction a lot when it comes to selling things because like if if you don't back yourself, it's difficult to get people to back you. And so there's that conviction where, you know, the more conviction that you can talk with and the more certainty that you can have in your voice, the more you can kind of persuade people. But I kind of wanted to go over like, Obviously being prime minister like there's a there's very few peers mm-hmm. and and I know like as a business owner and you know even as a father and stuff like that it can be difficult to find people so from a personal perspective what are like i guess some of the watershed moments that kind of stick out to you not only like not not like professionally but personally from becoming that prime minister because i can imagine it would be very profound in the beginning and then there's so many ups and downs to that
1: yeah i, I suppose there are inevitably a number of milestones in any Life in politics, getting pre-selected is a, is a milestone. Getting elected to parliament is a milestone. Getting into the ministry is a milestone. Getting into cabinets a milestone. Getting to be the party leader, and then the prime minister they're all they're all milestones. In terms of particular highs, well, for me, I guess coming come to grips with the people smuggling problem with Operation Sovereign Borders, and quite quickly solving what some people thought was an impossible-to-solve problem and Mm -hmm. stopping the boats, that was uh, pretty wonderful. Probably the thing that I least expected and which I I, I get a lot of satisfaction from looking back on, albeit uh, that it was a pretty tough time, was
0: uh, the way we dealt with the
1: MH17 atrocity. You'll remember that MH17 was shot down by a Russian missile battery that which.
0: seems incredibly relevant now.
1: Well it certainly does. I mean it it came across uh, from Russia into Ukraine, brought down MH17, killed 298 people including 38 Australians and it went back into Russia and it was it all happened in the context of the Russian seizure of the Crimea. Yeah. And then their infiltration into the Donbass as part of uh, Vladimir Putin's campaign Uh, to effectively remake greater Russia. So what we're seeing in the Ukraine at the moment is really just a massive escalation of a campaign that Putin began back in 2014. Yes, what he's doing now is new in the sense that it's on a massive scale and it's across the board, Mm. but his first mini-invasion, if you like, of, uh, of Ukraine was back then. So MH17 was shot down. Uh, Thirty-eight Australians were killed in the early days after that atrocity. Uh, the Russian-backed rebels were effectively uh, uh, picking over the wreckage, looting the site effectively. And uh, so, uh, Australia, the Netherlands, and Malaysia, who were the three principal countries, we needed to respond. And just for a period of time, it looked like it was going to have to be a military response uh, yeah. into eastern Ukraine. In the end. There was a military element to it. Uh, We had uh, quite a lot of our special forces on standby in the Netherlands. We had some on the spot in the eastern Ukraine, uh, but mostly it was a police operation that uh, scoured the site for evidence uh, to recover wreckage to uh, ensure that there were no body parts left uh, and, uh, and so on. A dreadful moment. In one sense, uh, particularly for the Australians who were bereaved, but uh, it was also an occasion when official Australia worked well uh, to uh, organise a very swift and effective emergency response, to be completely uncompromising in our approach to the Russian dictator. And uh, I think as a nation, we can actually draw considerable satisfaction and pride. From what we did in the eastern Ukraine uh, back in uh, in July and August of 2014, but but what was clear even then, Matt, and I know we're getting off the topic no, of salesmanship, but what was clear even then was the ruthless and brutal nature of the Russian dictator. Yeah, um, I can remember the famous shirt-fronting discussion in Beijing some months later. It was on the sidelines of the APEC conference. I said to uh, Putin uh, at the initial uh, reception that we needed to talk and then the next day pulled him aside um, into an alcove for a proper discussion and I put to him that uh, it was clear what had happened, a Russian missile battery had brought down this plane and I said, look, I don't hold you personally responsible in the sense that you gave the order but obviously you permitted this battery to be used to bring down planes over Ukraine, and at the very least, you need to offer an apology and uh, compensation to the families of the dead. Anyway, he went into a long rant through an interpreter about how- He's good at that. The Ukrainian government uh, were fascists, how the shootdown was a Ukrainian act of provocation, uh, how uh, the Ukraine was really part of Russia. And I responded that I got the Mother Russia thing, I'd read my Solzhenitsyn, I understood all about Keev and Ross and all the rest of it. At that point, we were summoned back into the conference and as we were walking in, he, he suddenly turned, grabbed me with both hands and said in English, he said, you are not a native Australian. I, he said, am a native Russian. And I thought to myself, what he's trying to say to me in this, at one level, rather odd outburst, is that I don't get it. Yeah, uh, He does. The blood and soil thing is a constant for him, and he has almost a sacred duty to restore greater Russia. And that's why what's happening now in Ukraine is so serious, not just for the 40-odd million people of Ukraine itself and their long-term freedom and independence, but for all the other countries that were once part of the Soviet Union or Russia, the Baltic states, Poland. In the end, uh, Moldova, Georgia. Uh, in the end, he wants to reestablish Russian overlordship of Eastern Europe. Uh, that's why this is such a serious, serious mm. business for the whole world.
0: Yeah. So so like when you're dealing with these world leaders at these large conferences, because you also negotiated a free trade agreement with mm-hmm. Japan. So I'm assuming you, you or I mean, I could be wrong, but you probably have different communication tactics with obviously different types of leaders. So can you, can you, can you talk to, sure. I guess, like how, like how do you get the most out of a relationship? Because it's give and take, but obviously we want to Ab- perceive abs- Absolutely right. Look, uh, everyone is different, I
1: suppose. Uh, and I was a bit of a stranger to a top level diplomacy when I became prime minister. My previous portfolios in government were workplace relations where if you're a liberal workplace relations minister, you tend to be in a bit of a cold war, if you like, okay. with uh, with the union movement. Because I had a bit of a DLP background, I suppose uh, I was a little bit more appreciative of the union movement than your typical liberal workplace relations minister. But nevertheless, coalition governments generally want to deregulate the workplace. Yep. Unions generally want to regulate regulate. the workplace. Coalition governments generally think that uh, individuals should be free to do their own thing. Unions tend to think that individuals are weak and in a sort of inferior relationship to the boss and therefore they need to be protected because they can't be trusted. Protected from themselves. Yeah, protected from themselves and and the boss. So, look, I, I was probably a little bit more sympathetic uh, to the unions than the average liberal industrial relations minister, but there were certain objectives. Uh, obviously, the government had to achieve, and I had to push as minister. So, so it wasn't exactly uh, great training in diplomacy. Uh, then, of course, I was health minister. Yeah. Uh, again, I suppose there's a bit of diplomacy with the various powerful professions that operate in health, and there's a bit of diplomacy required with the patient groups and. But there's Pharmaceutical a cultural... companies And so on, but, but international diplomacy was not my thing. So when I got there as PM, I thought, I don't want to pretend that uh, I like everything about every country when I don't, but I want to try to begin all of these relationships by saying something to my principal interlocutor, which is both true and, and helpful. Uh, and that they will want to hear. So, for instance, first time I met President Xi, uh, I uh, said, look, uh, Mr. President, uh, all credit to the Chinese people and government for what is probably the most remarkable transformation in history, lifting uh, half a billion people from the third world to the middle class in scarcely a generation. When I first met as Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, I said, look, uh, Shinzo uh, I just want you to know that, as far as I'm concerned, Japan has been an exemplary international citizen for the last 70 years. And the last thing I want to do is uh, use history as a stick uh, to beat Japan. At that point in time, China was constantly using
0: Mm.
1: the Second World War history to to attack Japan. With uh, President Obama, given that everyone who goes in to see the US president either wants something or wants to complain. I thought, well, I'm not going to make any demands on him. I'm just going to go in there and say I'm here to help. Uh, yeah. And and even though there were some things that President Obama did that <laughs> I wished he hadn't, yeah, I think he was at least appreciative of that initial approach. Australia okay. was only too ready, willing, and able to help. And I don't think too many
0: people go into meetings with the U.S. president offering to help. What is the dynamic like with someone like a U.S. president? Because obviously, you know, they're called leader of the free world. Mm, and, right? and the U.S. president, even now, is uh, <laughs> is the nearest thing to a
1: leader that the free world has. Yeah. Obviously, a lot does depend on the character and personality of the particular president Yeah, and on the circumstances in which the united states finds itself at any particular time and like all countries there are sort of waxings and wanings uh, but uh, but look uh, i reckon i reckon uh, the free world does need someone who can if you like uh, organize us and uh, the obvious person to do that is the united, the president of the united states by virtue of america's strength and benevolence and I think it's so important uh, for the long-term future of the wider world, particularly the democracies, that the United States is well and effectively led.
0: Yeah. I I would love to think that we all move beyond high school. Mm. However, the older I get and and the the more experienced I get, I realize that human beings default to certain communication. Mm -hmm. And like I, I know we'd all love to think that politicians are at some level above that, but I would have to think There would have to be an element within the international community of world leaders of like a just a natural hierarchy forming in the cool kids and the nerds. And I mean, obviously, that's a bit of a sophomoric way of looking at it. But does that formation happen? And like, do the certain countries kind of just stick together, like when you go to conferences and stuff like that? I think there's uh, probably a natural affinity between,
1: for argument's sake, the English speaking countries, between, say, the countries that have uh, a geographical uh, proximity, yeah. um, Western a Asian cultural Asian. proximity. Yeah. So, for instance, uh, as, as the Australian Prime Minister, I was determined to ensure that I had the best possible relationship with the countries of the Pacific, for instance, because they're our backyard. Yeah. I wanted to have a good relationship with the President of Indonesia because Indonesia is our largest and, if it chose, problematic neighbour. Uh, I naturally warmed uh, to uh, David Cameron for instance uh, to Stephen Harper of Canada for instance, to John Key of New Zealand for instance, it helped that not only were these Prime ministers English speakers but they were all from the center right of politics okay uh, but President Obama, who I had many dealings with brilliant uh, charming charismatic uh, it was it was certainly easy to get on with them um, yeah even if sometimes our perspectives were different
0: okay that's very well put um, <laughs> um so going back to you and, and i guess running uh i guess like you know like running to become the prime minister mm. and then getting public getting i guess public buy-in for your policies you were a fan of like a three-word slogan mm. You know what I mean? Is there any particular reason why you wanted to kind of convey, you know, stop the boats and axe the tax and that kind of stuff? Well, well, you'd
1: know, Matt. I'm sure that if your pitch goes over people's heads, they're not going to buy. Now, there's a bit of a difference, if I may say so, between I think commercial marketing or selling and and political marketing and selling, because um, you don't have to run down your competition to make a sale, but often enough in politics, it's not a question of persuading people how good you are because people have a general, I think, uh, tendency to uh, say a plague on all their houses in politics. So it's often easier to persuade people that the other mob are bad than it is to persuade people that you're good. Okay. So, so, So I think political marketing, if I might put it as crudely as that, is a little different yeah. from from others must from fail for you to end.
0: succeed. Essentially,
1: well, that's right. It's a ze- politics, if I may say so, is a is zero sum game. In this sense, at least, only one person can be prime minister. And if I'm prime minister or Malcolm prime, Turnbull is prime minister, by definition, no one else can be. Yeah. Uh, so only one person uh, can have the particular job, and. Uh, whereas if if you're Ford or Holden, for instance, uh, or Toyota or Nissan, there's market share. You w- while your market share might increase at someone else's expense. There's no reason why both of you can't succeed together. Yeah. Even if one person's relative success might be superior to the others, so so that is a bit of difference. Um, but in the end, uh, what what succeeds in politics, in in my judgment, is People have got to find you credible. Yep. They've got to at least have some uh, rapport with your argument. And your job is to try to make the best possible case for the changes that you believe are necessary. And at the same time, do it in ways which build your personal credibility. So, for instance, uh, I tried, I don't know whether I always succeeded. I tried never to personally run down my opponents. Mm-hmm. They might not always agree with that, but that <laughs> was what my objective because whether it was Kevin Rudd or Julia Gillard in their own way uh, and by their own lights they are trying to do the best thing they can for the country. Yeah. So so I tried not to attack their motivation uh, simply to attack their arguments okay, and to put forward what I thought was a better policy alternative to the one they were putting forward. So you've got to have a good argument and that means you've got to believe what it is that you are proposing because if you don't obviously believe it, no one else is going to believe it.
0: Yeah. Be- being that it's a zero-sum game, like it, it kind of brings me to the thought of like, you know… um Say like a land buyout, mm-hmm. you know, like in Sydney, there's a lot of developments, and there's one holdout that knows there's a land buyout going mm-hmm. on, so they demand ridiculous things. Mm-hmm. So, so giving that the fact that there is only going to be one prime minister, there is only going to be really one way of doing it. Mm-hmm. These backbenchers and 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 people, you know, whose vote you need like they, they seem to have a tremendous amount of leverage and like i guess what are some of the i guess persuasion or mm. you know you could probably have this worst thing called coercion like how do you get them across the line because you have to get the votes it's a very good question matt and i really dislike
1: this horse trading that goes on uh, particularly when it verges into not so much horse trading but but sort of vote buying yeah um, now i can remember as health minister i had to get a certain now deceased, but once very influential, Tasmanian senator across the line, and I think from recollection, and it's a long time ago, so my recollection might be imperfect, but my recollection is that a PET scanner for Royal Hobart Hospital was enough to sweeten the deal <laughs> okay. to persuade Brian Harrodine <laughs> to uh, <laughs> to support a particular it's very specific to, to support a particular government policy. Now, now I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with that no because the commitment that the government made to secure his vote was an intrinsically beneficial commitment yeah that was not going to particularly prejudice any of the other objectives uh, of the government one of the things i think i can honestly say i've never done is go up to a colleague and say for argument's sake vote for me and i'm going to ma- i'm going to put you in cabinet yeah don't vote for me and I'm going to drop you from cabinet. Uh, I've never done that because while I think it's fair enough to say to a crossbench senator, the government really wants this bill to pass, Uh, is there anything we can do to make it easier for you to vote for it? Uh, I think that's that's reasonable in the great scheme of things. Appealing to naked personal self-interest and putting someone into cabinet who arguably shouldn't otherwise have been there in order to get a personal objective for yourself, Yeah, I just think is the sort of thing that really turns people off politics.
0: I completely agree, which is actually a good segue, I I guess, into when you first became prime minister, Mm -hmm. there was nothing really to do with you, but there was an immediate scandal to do with the travel Mm allowances. Now, well, actually, I think I did get caught up in it. I think it was $170 or something you had to read, wasn't it? Uh, that, I, think <laughs> it was,
1: I think it was an airfare from Sydney to uh, to Albury I had to re- repay. Yeah. Because Seems I, a bit I, trivial, I'd, but- I'd, I'd gone down to a colleague's wedding. Now, my strong recollection was, and this was when I was health minister, yeah. my strong recollection was that I had coupled this with quite a few meetings, but – I couldn't prove that from my diary, so I thought the easiest thing was just to
0: pay back the Six or seven hundred bucks, or whatever it was, yeah, for, yeah. for the airfare. It seems easier. Mm. Um, yeah, when I when, uh, when I was in the military, we had diners cards, we had mm. uh, diners club cards, and they were issued to special forces in mm. case you needed to use them. And we did have to use them in certain mm. things, but I didn't know there were too many restaurants in Afghanistan that took diners cards. No, but there are there are in um, some of the uh, Indonesian countries. But um, okay. <laughs> yeah, um, I remember I was on a course and I had to buy lunch, and I bought lunch on the course, and it was like the world melted down. I was like, "Hang on a second! I'm supposed to be provided lunch." What, anyway? So I, I, f- I definitely feel you're paying with that kind of scrutiny. But a, there's a, people suddenly get very
1: hoity-toity about a lot of this stuff. Now, I think when I look when I look back on all the things politicians are allowed to do on the taxpayer, and and I think of all the things that I didn't do over the years in terms of flying the family to Canberra, flying the family around the countryside, and so on. I think. I've been uh, pretty frugal yeah, when it comes to these things. But it uh, doesn't matter what you do, uh, the public tend to sit in harsh judgment and that's why it's always better to yeah. say, I may have made a mistake. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Take it back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right.
0: But like mm. what is the, like you've just become prime minister mm. and all of a sudden, I assume all hell is broken loose. Mm. Everyone's freaking out thinking about everything they've done like what do you do to then okay everybody stop because this is you're brand new to this as well mm-hmm. and you've just come up like like what are the action steps that are taken just to calm everybody down and how do you deal with the media that's a very good question look normally
1: you you have to do your best to find the facts in a in as calm and dispassionate way as possible and and then you've got to find a way forward which suitably deals with the facts as found and In that particular instance, from recollection, quite a few people ended up repaying a hundred bucks there, a thousand bucks there, et cetera. But the, the interesting thing about politics is that that's never the only thing that's going on. And you can't let the crisis du jour deflect you from all the other things that need to be got on with. Mm. And you've got to have the ability to, in a sense, compartmentalize. And not allow any of the stress that you might be feeling over embarrassing issue X to stop you from getting on with vital issue y yeah uh, for instance, just at the moment in Britain, my friend Boris Johnson has got the so-called Party gate issue yeah to deal with, but he's also got a major historic uh, security crisis to uh, to deal with as well now now, I hope Boris is spending. of his time doing his best to help Ukraine deal with this crisis and not fretting too much about whether someone might decide that actually uh, he should have been fined 200 quid for attending a party in the wrong circumstances. Interestingly, I don't really want to get into the business of detailed commentary on British politics and the day-to-day events, but... This idea that someone should resign uh, from the greatest office in the land simply because they've been in breach of some trivial and over the top rule, uh, I just think is wrong. Take Daniel Andrews, for instance, the Victorian premier. Yeah. He was fined twice, twice for breaching his own over the top and ridiculous mask rules, but no one said Daniel Andrews should resign as a result. So yeah. you've got to be able to, you've got to be able to carry on with the important notwithstanding the crisis du jour because at least half the time in politics there is a hue and cry over something which is either trivial or confected. You can't not get caught up in it if only because it will tend to be dealt with in Parliament, but you can't let it distract you from what is always the main game.
0: Yeah. And and like with Parliament, because I, like, I grew up in the U.S., so it's a very different system. Mm-hmm. And that's, to be honest, most of my knowledge is about that system. When I first saw how everybody acted in parliament, I was I, I was like, is this is this real? Mm. It, it just seems like a bunch of people yelling at each other. How productive is that actual process in terms of, or is it just people like getting to grandstand and, and make themselves feel better to their own constituency? Having been in the parliament for
1: 25 years and having been on the front bench for 20 years, I've got to say, and I do truly believe that the theatre of Parliament is a significant part of democratic accountability. Okay. But a lot of the time it is, to coin a phrase, full of sound and fury signifying if not nothing, certainly not not very much. Mm. And what I think you've always got to try to do is to keep a sense of Perspective about it. So, if you're the opposition, you've got to maintain an appropriate level of outrage. What's you more fun? You can't be equally leadership? outraged over everything. Yeah. If if some things are genuinely minor transgressions or minor faults on the part <laughs> of the government, so there's no point going from zero to hundred decibels. Yeah. Over, over something which is really a uh, a mere a mere indiscretion or misdemeanor, yeah. as opposed to a political mortal sin. Yeah. And and look that's that's again it's a question of judgement.
0: Yeah. Do you feel like the system will remain do you feel like we're going to remain a parliamentary system? Oh absolutely. Look yeah. uh,
1: Australia for all it's it's very easy to be critical of of our parliamentarians of our elected leaders and up to a point uh, much of the criticism is deserved because none of us are perfect all of us make mistakes. There's always uh, different ways of handling things and most of us would accept that we're not every day our best selves. But if you think that Australia is a great country, and most of us do, the people who've led the place over the years deserve at least some of the credit. Mm -hmm. So for all the faults of individuals and for all the inevitable imperfections of our system, on balance, our political class has done well. And on balance, our system is about as fail-safe and foolproof as any system can be. Now, again, I I don't want to get into the personalities too deeply, but uh, I don't think someone like Donald Trump uh, could become the leader of Australia. I'm not saying that Trump was a bad president. I think in some respects, he was quite a good president. Yep. In any event, he was- probably going to be president again. And and in any event, he (laughs) was the leader of the free world while he was there. And and it was our duty to be as supportive as we could be. Yeah, to him. The goal can't but, be for but, someone to but, fail. But you're too- not. But you, I don't believe someone who was as technically underqualified and as much of an outsider as he was could come to the fore in a parliamentary system because a you've got to be in parliament. Yeah. And b you've got to have enough people in parliament to support you to have the job. So uh, you'd never get a prime minister Trump in Australia. You'd never get a prime minister Macron in Australia. Presidential systems are much more likely to throw up outsiders for better or for worse than a parliamentary democracy is.
0: Okay. That makes sense. And and, uh, I suppose like, there, there does seem to be like you know with the there does seem to be at the moment in international politics a little bit of uh, not changing of the guard, but there seems to be some shifts with like Macron, Trudeau, obviously very young as well, and then Trump, and mm. you know what I mean. I think Biden is kind of a shift back to what was. Where do you think that's coming from? In, like in particular, well,
1: if you look at the U.S. Uh, and I've never lived for any length of time in America, but obviously I've you've got to pay attention to what's happening in America. If you look at the U.S. over the last couple of decades, successive presidents have, if you like, been a reaction to their predecessor. Yep. So Obama was a reaction to George W. Bush. Yep. Uh, Trump was a reaction to Obama, and Biden is a reaction to Trump. So we went from a um, uh, a very liberal in the American sense of the word, President Obama, to the ultimate politically incorrect president in Trump and we went from the ultimate outsider in Trump to the ultimate insider in Biden. So, yeah. as I said, there's... the waxing I, I, I think looking at the United States in particular, there, there are pressures in the United States which are causing stresses uh, which are playing out in American politics. For instance until very recently at least, average wages had been stagnant for a long time in America. Mm -hmm. Globalisation had been much more beneficial, so it seemed, to workers in other countries than to workers in America. Uh, America's role as effectively the world's policeman had disproportionately benefited other countries Mm -hmm. rather than America. So... You can understand why there was quite a lot of pressure in the United States to do things differently. And this was where, when candidate Trump talked about draining the swamp, he touched a chord with a lot of Americans who had felt left too left out for too long. Three words mm-hmm. drain That's the swamp, exactly right. Lock Stop up. the boats, act <laughs> the tax, yeah. build the roads, fix the budget. Yeah. Okay. So you've I got, get- you've got. To, you have got to say things to people which they get and which are meaningful. For instance, which they can emotively in, in, respond to. in the 2013 election, I said, stop the boats, axe the tax, build the roads, fix the budget. In the 2016 election, my successor talked about jobs and growth. Well, what does jobs and growth mean? It's a sort of a motherhood statement. Mm. Whereas stopping the boats is real. Specific. That's a specific, tangible thing. You're
0: also held accountable to it once you've said it. Exactly So right. I guess like, I guess, you know, right. from a confidence and conviction mm. perspective, you're like, well, this is a tangible that we can hold you accountable Dead to. Dead right. Yeah. yeah. So I guess like, um, you know, just kind of traveling backwards a little bit and let me know when you need to go. I've probably got another five minutes. Okay, right? perfect. Yeah. yeah. Um, what, what, how, was that the ultimate goal? Like I always say like, you know, when I was a sniper, like I saw a photo of a guy wearing black hanging off the side of a building. And I was like, I want to be that guy. I took it to the recruiter and I was like, how do I be this dude? Mm-hmm. And he sort of told me and I was like, okay. Um, when did you know that you wanted to be PM? Well, I, I don't think I ever really wanted to
1: be PM. I wanted to change our country for the better. And The person who wants to be PM for himself or herself, I think is in it for the wrong reasons. You should want to be PM because there are certain things that you would like to do for your country. And Mm -hmm. in my case, uh, I became party leader because the then incumbent was making what I thought was a fundamental mistake in terms of our, our policy and ultimately the country's direction. And then I wanted to win elections, not because I necessarily thought I was God's gift to politics, but I thought that what I was trying to do was going to be much more helpful to the country than what the other mob were trying to do. So so for me, the prime ministership was not an end in itself. It was a means to an end. Uh, The end was fixing the disaster on our borders. It was... Try to ensure that government wasn't sponging off taxpayers to the extent that it was. It was trying to ensure that people's daily lives were better because we actually stopped the analysis paralysis and got cracking and building new roads and new airports and so on. So it was the things that I was trying to do that drove me not, and I hope I'm not kidding myself here, not lust for the particular
0: position. I would have to say that seems like you'd be the rarity Maybe, from, from my own personal perspective. Well,
1: well, look, it is, I think, the public's
0: perception. general
1: perception stroke prejudice that politicians are in it for themselves. but But I don't actually think that's fair, at least to a considerable extent. Most politicians start off at least doing it For the country and the ideals now i suspect along the way uh, many of them get caught up in the drama of the game and it it does become in a sense well i've got to win because i've got to win so to speak
0: you also Um, can't hide anymore i mean there's everyone holds a camera and everyone holds a microphone so there's an element of there is no more veil um that's that's for sure i mean talk about life in a goldfish bowl yeah yeah. So, well, all right. I really appreciate you coming on. I know you're a very busy guy. Well, and Matt, um, I'm not as busy as I
1: was. And <laughs> the reason why I decided to come on was because I, you're uh, the son-in-law of one of my best friends, but also because as someone who's served our country in uniform and taken risks for our country, the least I can do is offer you and your business some support and encouragement and good on you for making a go of things in your post-military life
0: i appreciate it and good on you for you know keeping doing the thing and you know leading our country it was much appreciated it was a good time while it lasted i enjoyed it <laughs>
1: even if it was a long time ago for a nanosecond
0: yeah it was an honor to be there mate it was all right thanks very much all right guys um thank you so much for uh you know watching make sure you like subscribe hit the notification bell, all that kind of good stuff and uh we'll see you in the next one bye
1: put that coffee down coffee's for closers only Ha <laughs>